Glad you're here this morning. If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 1 Thessalonians and the last chapter, which is chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. If you grab it and in the back portion of that, turn to page 161, you will find yourself at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. Now, over the years, there have been a number of Christian books written that had titles that I wished I had chosen and had written. Well, one of those books is a book by J.B. Phillips entitled, Your God is Too Small. What a great book title. It's a great classic if you haven't read it. But we live, this is no news to you, in a bewildering world. Daily there are events that crop up that perturb and perplex us. There's a burgeoning amount of information coming our way. We have electronic communication overdose. We now have video showing us activities all around the world, so the world is really right in our living room. We have all this avalanche of emailing and texting and internet communication. And too often, I think what happens is we get a little bit overwhelmed. Too often we tend to operate, whether it be at school or at work or even at home, we tend to operate with a God-in-a-box mentality. Sometimes we operate with a, a remnant of an inadequate Sunday school image of God. We tend to sometimes operate where we've really reduced God to some sort of uh, cosmic genie that we call upon periodically when we have need of him. A.W. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Great statement. And how we live on a daily basis, how you live your life, is directly tied to your view of God. And too often, the truth is we're limping along with a God who is too small. But when we have a clear and a full view of who God is, we see a God of limitless power and limitless love and limitless faithfulness. So here's the goal I have for us today. I want to encourage you. You have a big God. That's the title of our message today. You have a big God. And the verses we're going to look at from chapter 5 are verses 23 to 28. I would like to invite you to read along, follow along in your Bible as I read these verses. From the Holy Spirit to the hand of Paul to your ears. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, as Paul gets ready to conclude his communication to the Thessalonians, and as we get ready to finish off our study of the book, 
I want us to see that there's really two uh, thrusts here in these verses. The first is a final encouragement that occurs in verses 23 and 24. It's really Paul's prayer for them. And then we have final instructions given in verses 25 to 28. And they can be summarized by pray, greet, and read. So we want to look at those things, the final encouragement and the final instructions this morning. So let's begin by looking at the final encouragement that's in verses 23 and 24. Now Paul prays for them here. And I think it's very strategic that he has a prayer right here. If you've been with us in our study, you'll know that there were a series of commands, rapid-fire staccato commands, commands, directives given to the believers. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. A whole series of commands that he gives to them. And if you look at those commands and just take them as a group and you think, wow, that's overwhelming. Well, we need to understand that that's not what Paul was intending to do. Paul was not, as one commentator put it, lobbing grenades at folks who struggle in the game of life. That's not what he was doing when he shot all these commands at us. He was not promoting do-it-yourself Christianity. He was not trying to get us to operate on the highway of self-sufficiency. He wasn't really saying by all the series of commands he gives us very quickly that you need to be self-driven, that you really don't have any need of the supernatural to fulfill these commands. Paul knows, he knows what we're like. He knows that we need help. He knows that God is a big God. And he knows that he'll do it. That God will do it. He will give us the ability to fulfill these commands. And so, basically, here's what I think is going through Paul's mind. He says, I have exhorted you. But the key to understand as you get all these commands coming at you is to understand that God is at work. And really what the prayer is, if I could just summarize it, it would be this. God, would you do a thorough work in their life? You know, when you look at verse 23, the central word in verse 23 is the word sanctify. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Now before we go any further, we need to just pause for a short theology lesson. When we talk about sanctification, there are three kinds of sanctification. Sanctify really means to set apart in some way. There's three kinds in the Bible. The first one is positional sanctification. This talks about how we were delivered when we trusted Christ from the penalty of sin. And a verse for that is Hebrews 10.10, where it says, We have been, you notice it's past tense, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So you have positional sanctification. And then another type of sanctification that's talked about in the Bible is called experiential sanctification. This is where we are in the process of being set apart from the power of sin in our life. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16, 
is a verse that refers to experiential sanctification where it says there, like the Holy One who called you, and the word holy is this idea of being sanctified, being set apart, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. It's not a past tense thing. It's a process that we're involved with. Be holy in all your behavior, for you shall be holy, you shall be sanctified, for I am holy. And then there's a third type of sanctification in the Bible, and that's called ultimate sanctification. And this is where we are set apart, actually, from the very presence of sin. This is where we actually go to heaven. And as it says in 1 John 3, 2, that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. The presence of sin will be completely gone from our life. So you have those three kinds of sanctification, positional, experiential, and ultimate. Now, when the idea of sanctification comes up here in verse 23, he is talking about experiential sanctification, being set apart from the power of sin in our life, growing from that. So now may the God of peace himself, notice this is very interesting, I don't know if you mark in your Bible, but the word himself is very emphatic in the original verse. His prayer is that the God of peace himself would be involved and sanctify you entirely. I think the NIV says through and through. It's a very interesting expression. It takes uh, the word in the original to finish and the word whole and just wraps it together. My prayer is that God would finish it and your whole being might be set apart to him, that you would be, in other words, pure and holy on every level of your life, that every part of your life would be set apart for him. The professional part of your life would be holy. The relational part of your life would be holy. The financial part of your life, how you handle the money that he gives you might be holy. The sexual part of your life, that it might be holy and pure. The personal part of your life, the private part of your life, the things that you do when no one is looking, that that might be holy. In other words, the prayer for those believers and the prayer for us is that we would yield it all to him professional, relational, financial, sexual, personal. That's the prayer. And you know, when I look at that, I have to begin to wrestle with that a little bit personally. Are there any areas of your life, any areas of my life that are, are being withheld or the things that are going on in, in the professional arena of your life, the relational arena of your life, financial, sexual, personal, any of those areas where we're withholding things from Him? And if so, really what we need to do is let Him in. <laughs> let Him invade that part of our life. Let Him work in that part of our life. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. 
And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it talks about the return of Christ and that reality is still a reality for us. That becomes a source of motivation, a a part of a motivation for wanting to live differently. As you think about a fall beginning and all the things you're going to do this fall, it's still possible that Christ could come back. And the very fact that he could return, I mean, think about what would happen if we knew he was coming. And we knew he was coming on October the 1st. Would we live any differently? <laughs> we would. Well, we need to keep that as part of the motivation. He could come back at any time. And then notice verse 24. This is the, this is the one that I, I put a star beside. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Great prayer that he's given. And really what he's saying here in verse 24 is God can do this. Don't don't think God can't. Count on him to do it. Count on him to transform you. And I think verse 24 brings to us a big dose of this encouragement that we wanted to share with you today. And that big dose of encouragement is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Let me just ask you again. It's a good question to ask. How big is your God? Do you have a God that you have an overwhelming conviction about that he is faithful? Now, I'm going to share with you some perspective from Scripture in the next few moments, and I want to encourage you to write these verses down. We're not going to turn to all of them. But they can become a source of some of your own personal study and your own personal encouragement, okay? But these are verses that talk about how we have a God who is faithful. Deuteronomy 7.9. Listen to what Moses says. He says, Know the Lord your God is a faithful God, a God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations. That's the kind of God that we have. We have a God who is faithful. Lamentations 3.23, Jeremiah says this, The Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, he says. And if you really want to understand part of the magic behind that verse, go back and study the context of what was happening when he made those statements. You have Moses who says it. You have Jeremiah who says it. In Psalm 36, 5, you have David who says it. And he says to God, your God, God, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. That's how great it is. It goes all the way up into the heavens. In other words, God in your life, when you know him personally, will always be loyal to you. He will always be true to you. He will never renege on his promises. He will never fail us. We have a God who is faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9 simply just makes the statement, God is faithful. 
People often aren't, but God is. And then I love the picture in Revelation 19. Many of you know one of my favorite passages. This is when Christ comes back the second time. Heaven is opened up, and it's an awesome scene. And you have Jesus who's pictured being on this white horse. And then it says this about him. He is called faithful and true. That's the name he's given in heaven. Faithful and true. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17, Paul is reflecting on his life and he says this, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Translation, God has been faithful in my life. God is bigger than the problems that you and I face. God is bigger than the circumstances that we have to deal with. God is bigger than the enemy who prowls around on this planet looking for someone that he can eat up spiritually. So what does that really mean then? It means that we need to trust him in the midst of what we experience in life because God is faithful. We have a faithful God, men and women. Now, this is an overwhelmingly common theme in the Bible. Over and over again, we are reminded that God is faithful. I want to look at a few more passages, though. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. We're trying to encourage your heart by reminding you about how God is faithful. Chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation. This is the word that could mean testing or temptation. It's used for both. So it could be some testing that comes our way. It could be some temptation that comes our way. But no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you're not going through anything unique Other people go through similar kinds of things. But then notice the statement in the middle of all of that. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or test will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You can count on it, men and women. God is faithful. He's calibrating everything. He knows exactly what's going on. He planned it from before you were born. He is faithful. He is faithful. Now I want to look at another passage. It's all the way back towards where we are in 1 Thessalonians. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We have a God who's faithful. Notice verse 3, he says, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. That's the one, again, who wants to disrupt your life. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your relationships. But God is faithful, and he will strengthen you, and he will protect you from the evil one. We have a God who is faithful. We need to be reminded of this. 
One other passage I want you to look at as we track a theme of God being faithful is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. It's a verse that many people have memorized. But it's just another reminder. It says, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God concerning our sins, notice this, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, He loves us despite my bent to sin. I find that incredibly encouraging. He loves us despite our tendency to want to run our own life. He knows that we do have this tendency to mess up. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then I just want you to jot down one final passage, which is one of my favorite little verses in the New Testament. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, and it says this, If we are faithless, He remains faithful. You ever have eras in your life when you say, I, I don't know that I have any faith to trust God anymore. And when we're that way, we begin to wonder, well, if I don't have faith, where do I stand with Him? And the whole point is, when we are faithless, He remains faithful. And men and women, we need to remember that when our knees are buckling. We need to remember that when our stomach is churning. We need to remember that when we are in the midst. <laughs> We need to remember that He is faithful. How big is your God? How big is your God? I want you to turn in the middle of your Bible to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a great declaration of the faithfulness of God. And uh, we could take really a couple of days, a couple of Sundays, and go through the psalm. We're not going to do that. But I want you to know that what is stated in this verse, if He is the Savior, the deliverer from sin in your life, the rescuer from sin, if he's the leader of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what is in this psalm is true for you. And in particular, I want to notice the last verse. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, men and women, that is an amazing statement. You notice he says there, 
surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. He doesn't say, well, maybe. I, I, I think it could happen this way. Perhaps. I don't really know. Perhaps it would happen. I, I sort of think. I'm hoping. No. What David says is, count on it. Count on it. Surely, goodness and loving kindness, many translations say mercy, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness, that's where God provides for us. And mercy, that's where God pardons us. And he says, surely, goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Everything I needed to have provided, he'll provide. All the pardon that I would ever need, he will provide. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me. It's an interesting picture, isn't it? As you walk your way through life, what's following after you? God's goodness. God's mercy. It's going to stay with you because God stays with you. God is at your side. He never gives up on you. Yeah, I know some of the things that you've been thinking about, some of the things maybe that you've done recently because I know myself. He's not giving up on you. Not giving up on you. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Not just some of the days of my life, not just many of the days of my life, but he says, each and every day. God's faithfulness is there each and every day. What's ahead for you the rest of this year? What's ahead for me? I don't know exactly. I believe there will be some difficulty it may be some difficulty that relates to school. It may be some difficulty that relates to a job. It may be some difficulty that relates to your health or the health of a loved one. What's really ahead? I, I think there has to be some struggle there. For some of us, there may be some struggle in our marriage or with our children or with some relationship. What's important to remember? Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, including the next number of months. You see, we may waver men and women, 
But God never does. He never does. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What a great truth that is. Incredible. God is faithful, and how we live on a daily basis is directly tied to our view of God. Can't get away from it. Back in 1 Thessalonians, chapter number 5, and verse 24, Paul says, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Do you believe that? It's true. Now, having looked at the final encouragement, we want to take a few moments just to look at the final instructions that he gives to the believers. Three, really. Verse 25, first one is pray. The command here is structured to be a lifestyle command. Brethren, pray for us. Now just stop, freeze frame for a moment. Let me ask you the question. When you pray, who do you pray for? Now, if we were really going to have everybody give an answer to that, the truth of the matter is, for a great number of us, the answer to that question would be, myself. I pray for me. And, and what Paul's saying is, wait a minute. We not to do, it's okay to pray for me, but we are to pray for others. Brethren, pray for us. And if you, if you say, well, I, I don't really know who to pray for. I'll give you a suggestion. Pray for me. I'll take it from every one of you. You know, many of you know we had to go up to Nebraska and do a memorial service for my, my wife Janet's grandmother, Grandma Belle, who left to go home to be with Jesus, which is what she wanted to do at the young age of 105 and a half. Totally lucid. Just in the, just except for the last couple of days where she began to, to kind of go in and out a little bit. But you know what Grandma Bell did? Every morning she prayed for me. She prayed for all of her family, but I was included in that. So there's one less person praying for me right now. So I could use your prayers. Let me ask you another question. How many people here this morning would like to have somebody praying for you? Could I just see some hands if you'd like someone praying for you? Okay. Well, why don't you start it by praying for somebody else? See, that's the thrust of all of this. We need to pray. 
If we all want someone to pray for us, it's got to start somewhere. It starts with you. It starts with me. So the first final instruction is, brethren, pray. Particularly pray for other people. Hold other people up in prayer. And then the second final instruction is found in verse 26, and it's the word greet. Another lifestyle command. This is not something you just do once. This is to be part of your lifestyle. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. All the brethren. That's referring to the church family at large. Greet all the brethren, the brothers and the sisters in the family, with a holy kiss. And we look at that and go, exactly what is that? Uh, is this something that we should be doing? How many people have ever heard a sermon on greeting one another with a holy kiss? So there's a few of you out there, but not very many of you. It's rather interesting to me, I find it intriguing, that we are commanded five times in the New Testament to do this. Five times times. That's actually quite a few. The passages, if you just would like to jot them down, Romans 16, 16 says that we are to greet one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 20 says we are to greet one another, all these with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. It has a slight different twist to it. But five times in the New Testament, boom, 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 boom. This is to be the lifestyle of believers. So what is going on here, and what are we supposed to do, and how cultural is this, or, or whatever? How do we relate to that? Well, I want to make, for just a moment or two, two observations. I want to look at a core principle, and then I want to look at a key guideline that he gives us here. So observation number one is this. In the New Testament culture, kissing was a common greeting and expression of affection. It was very, very common. And I'll just give you some passages. You can look them up later, but Luke chapter 7, verse 45, that's where Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house by the name of Simon. And while he's there, this woman of ill repute comes there with a vial of very expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she begins kissing his feet. And of course, you know, there's a freak out here that the Pharisee has. Like, does he not know who she is and what in the world's going on here? And one of the things Jesus turns to him and says is this, when I came into your house, Simon, you gave me no kiss. So I don't want to hear about what she's doing. In other words, it was a common greeting and an expression of affection. And, you know, in Luke chapter 22, verse 47, you might remember when Judas was going to betray Jesus, one of the things he said to the guards, if you want to know who Jesus is, I'll tell you, it's the one to whom I go up and kiss. Just a very common greeting and expression of affection in that day. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 37, when you have Paul, who had been working with the Ephesian elders, and then he was getting ready to depart from them, and there was a lot of emotion that they felt because of their spiritual adventures. It says that they were, the elders, with Paul, weeping and embracing him and kissing him because it was 
a common greeting and expression of affection. That's observation number one I want to make. Observation number two is this. The principle can be the priority over the practice. As we seek to interpret things in the New Testament, sometimes we need to realize that the principle can be the priority over the practice. I want you to look at an interesting verse in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. Turn with me there, 1 Timothy 5, not very far away. Verse 23. And Timothy was apparently having some stomach issues. And so Paul writes to him in verse 23, he says, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now what was Paul saying here? And we're looking at at ourselves here as believers in Jesus Christ today, thousands of years later, how are we to respond to this verse? Was Paul saying, if you have a stomach ache, you must drink wine. That's what all believers do. Is that what he's saying here? Or is he saying, if you have a stomach ache, take an appropriate remedy. And in the culture of the day, with limited medical treatment, wine was an effective remedy for an upset stomach. So sometimes the principle can be the priority over the practice. You see what's going on here? So we always need to ask ourselves the question when we look at certain passages, what was the culture and what is the principle? What was the culture and what is the principle that is being taught? Now let me ask you a question. In the culture of the United States of America, in the new millennium, is kissing a common greeting and expression of affection in our culture? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. No doubt if you lived in Europe, a lot more people would say yes than would say yes in the United States of America. I've been really fascinated watching the Olympics and I've been observing this, and you know what I noticed? I noticed that a kiss of affection, pretty common among the girls in the Olympics. You'll often see the girls with a kiss here and a kiss on the other cheek. I haven't seen it yet with the guys in the Olympics. But whatever this really means in chapter 5 and verse 26, it needs to apply to both boys and girls, to men and women, not just to one. Greet all the brethren, he says, with a holy kiss. Now we've made a couple of observations. I want to talk about what I think is really the core principle. You may not agree with me fully on this, but this is what I think the core principle is, is give a warm, sincere expression of affection to one another. That's what I believe Paul's saying to us. Give a warm, sincere expression of affection to one another. And that 
involves physical touch. And I think across the generations and cultures, it should be done in the spirit of what is sanctioned and recognized by the culture is the way that you give a greeting of affection, a warm, sincere expression of affection to one another. So in, in, in the U.S., I think that could mean a kiss on the cheek. I think that very well could mean a hearty hug. It could mean a hearty handshake. But I, what I want you to understand, this is very important, this is a command that God has given to you and given to me. It's not an optional thing. It doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it and you really, really are super comfortable with this, I want you to do it. No, it's, I want all of you to give one another, men and women, a warm, sincere expression of affection. And some of you may be thinking, wait a minute now, you don't know and understand. I grew up in a family that, that never showed warmth and affection. I, I grew up in a family where we just didn't do that kind of stuff. And my answer to that is, you're in a new family now. You are in a new family now. This is a command. This is not optional. The core principle, give a warm, sincere expression of affection to one another. It should involve some physical touch. Now, that leads us to the key guideline in all of this, which is tucked right into verse 26. You notice he says, greet all the brethren with a... Here's the guideline, holy kiss. A kiss or a hug that involves seduction or lust would be an unholy one. A kiss or a hug with an ulterior motive behind it would be an unholy one. See, that's what Judas's was. It was unholy. But touch is important. It communicates caring. And so that may mean a hand on the shoulder. It may mean a hug. It may mean a family-style kiss. It may mean a hearty handshake. But really what he's saying to us is we need to show heartfelt, genuine care for one another. And we often talk about life response at Wildwood. Well, guess what? We're there. It needs to begin today. This is one of those things. You can actually apply this part of the message immediately. Give a warm, sincere expression of affection to one another. And then the third piece of instruction, final instruction, is in verse 27, and that is read. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. I, I think the thrust is just simply this, the reminder that the reading and the hearing and the studying of the truth of God is of top importance. The truth needs to be read, it needs to be heard, it needs to be studied, and that's what Wildwood is all about, men and women. Living out God's truth. You know, it is great to know God. It is great to be a part of the family of God. 
And I just want to say to you, if you happen to be here today and you don't know him personally and you're not part of the family of God by faith in who Christ is, I want to just encourage you to seek him. He is worthy of knowing. Worthy of knowing. And then you'll notice he ends the letter by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If you go back and you look at the first verse, he starts with grace. He ends with grace grace. That's what it's all about. God just hid his grace towards you and me. Now as, as we close, I just want to close by rereading this passage. So I invite you just to bow your head. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to reread this passage as it is in the message So here's the version of this passage from the message. And so let's just pray together. Just as Paul did with those believers, we're going to pray together now. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, make you holy and whole, put you together, spirit, soul, and body, and keep you fit for the coming of our Master Jesus Christ. The one who called you is completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. Friends, keep up your prayers for us. Greet all the Christians there with a holy embrace. And make sure this letter gets read to all the brothers and sisters. Don't leave anyone out. The amazing grace of Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.